0: My name is Chandler, and I'm the youth pastor here, uh, and if you didn't know, this is actually National Youth Pastor Gets to Speak Day because it's the 4th of July. Uh, so we want to say welcome to those of you in your cabins, uh, and welcome to those of you in the room who actually love Jesus more. Uh, thank you for being here. Um, yeah, this this is the committed. Uh, I notice there's a strong correlation between those who love Jesus more and those who don't have cabins, so... Uh, You guys might not know this about me, but me and my family moved from San Diego, California uh, just a little over a year ago. This is a picture of my beautiful family. Uh, It's actually just Heather and Paisley and I that all moved. Jack was born here. So he is a Truman Sotan. Last July, he was born here. Um, And if you didn't know that I was from San Diego, well, it's probably because we've never had a conversation because I bring it up constantly. It's... uh, it's, I'm, I'm kinda new to this whole Minnesota thing, um, and so what I thought would be fun today is just to take some time and point out the differences between California and Minnesota. Now, I know for a lot of you guys, you thought they were the exact same place and they, they were the same experience living here, but they are a little bit different, so I'm about to blow your minds and uh, tell you how they are not the same place. The first difference that I've noticed between California and Minnesota is how we say things. Right when I was interviewing, I noticed this, like for example, if I'm going to go to the grocery store and I don't want to carry all my items individually to the car, I would ask for a bag. Some of you might ask for a bag. Um, Or like if you guys get startled or scared or things like that, you might say jeepers. Oh, no, wait, actually, that's just Eli, the rest of you, you're all, you're actually all normal. So it's not just how we speak, but it's also what we call things. Like for example, what do you guys refer to this as? What do you call these? Freezies. I learned this the hard way last summer when I was telling the students, hey guys, after service we have some Otter Pops for you. And everyone just looked at me like, what are you talking about? Has anyone, show of hands, anyone ever heard of Otter Pops? You know what those are? Show a picture of Otter Pops. These are Otter Pops. They're the exact same thing, but the brand name in California is Otter Pops. And so when I told students, you're getting Otter Pops, they're all like, we don't know what you're talking about. So how we speak is one difference, but the other, another difference I've noticed is what we consider to be the best fast food burger chain in America to be. Now, if you're here, you might say Culver's, and I'm here to tell you that you're wrong. The best fast food burger chain in the United States is In-N-Out. Now, I know a couple months back, Jeremiah, in a message, he talked about how he went to California and he had In-N-Out, and it's overrated and it's not all that, and he's entitled to his opinion, it's just a wrong one. (laughs) In-N-Out is the best burger chain, chain, fast food burger chain in the country. Now, don't get me wrong, I love Culver's and I love burgers, but as a pastor, my job is to share the truth with you guys. And so you needed to know that the best fast food burger chain in America is In-N-Out. The next difference that I've noticed is something that I've heard a lot of Minnesotans refer to as Minnesota Nice, which some people say is just the passive-aggressive nature of Minnesotans. Um, But it's really true that if you go and visit Southern California and you are in Minnesota, you will notice that, on average, your day-to-day interactions are filled with more kindness than in Southern California. See, in California, when like fast food is very transactional, or when you're talking to your barista, there's not a lot of kindness there on both ends. Whereas in Minnesota, they're asking us how our day is, and I feel like they're actually interested in who I am and talking to me. And so there is kind of this underlying nice culture that you have here, and sometimes that leads to passive aggressiveness. But for the most part, it is true that there is a general kindness, a niceness that exists here in Minnesota. So good job, guys, on being nice. Keep it up. But the biggest difference I've noticed by far is, of course, the weather. I know you guys thought the weather might be the same, but in Southern California, the weather is consistent, warm weather. And well, in Minnesota, as you know, it's not. So the weather has affected so much of our lives it's it's completely changed the way we do everything here uh in fact the question I got asked the most my first year being here was people would ask me this all the time they'd find out I'm from San Diego and they would look at me and say why on earth would you ever move here it was almost unanimous like I would tell someone I'm from San Diego and that's what they would ask and so often I hear people say this phrase they're like why do we all live here and I've just never been to a place where the entire population wishes they live somewhere else. They're, you guys are like, like, people are like, why do we live here? And I'm like, uh, I, just, I wanna let you know in case no one's ever informed you that there's actually homes in other states <laughs> and there's airplanes to get to those states. Uh, And and all jokes aside, I really have loved living here in the Midwest. It's just funny. People always find out we live here and they're like, why, why would you do that to yourselves? Uh, But we've loved living here in the Midwest and the weather has been something that we've had to adapt to. It's changed our lives in a lot of ways. Like we had to get an entirely new wardrobe for the winter. I had to get a big old coat because my little San Diego zip up jacket wouldn't do. Uh, We had to learn how to drive, well, it'll probably be a four year process, but I'm learning how to drive in the snow and in the severe weather. And I also learned the value of space heaters and then quickly after the cost of space heaters from the electric bill. Um, Yeah, I wish wish I would have known that lesson before. But the most valuable lesson I've learned from the weather is what you do when you go on vacation. You see, in California, if you go on vacation and you're going to be gone for an extended period of time, you turn off your AC because you want to save money on electricity. So I... Like any responsible first-time homebuyer living here in Minnesota, when I went back to Christmas, or when, when I went back to California for Christmas, I wanted to save money on my electricity. So I thought it would be wise of me to turn off my heat. I, look, okay, I know now, all right? So... We were checking the weather while we were looking at Christmas lights on December 28th, and we saw the first week of negative degrees coming. And I thought to myself, is this going to be a problem? So we called our friends Christiana and Caleb, and we said, hey, uh, is it going to be an issue that our heat is off? And they were like, you turned your heat off? So, very soon after that, I called Jake Stank, the worship pastor, and I said, Hey, Jake, I know you leave for Wisconsin in the morning, and it's 9.30 at night, but would you be able to go to our house and turn on our heat so our pipes don't burst? And Jake said, Sure thing. Where's your key?" I said, Jake, I don't have a -a key," And I locked all the doors, including deadbolting the garage. So Jake, like the hero he is, said, Not a problem. So he brought a ladder with him over to our house... And I said, maybe there's a window that's unlocked. He found the upstairs window unlocked, pulled out the screen, and broke into our house. And here's pictures of this miraculous event. Uh, this is Jake, headlamp on. In uh, like It was like 10 degrees that night. So headlamp, Jake, here's the next picture. It's 45 degrees in our house, if you can't see that. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a good temperature for your house to be, right? Uh, and then here's Jake. He took some eggnog. Uh, <laughs> that was his prize for being a hero. Um, I know you guys see Jake lead worship in here every week, but one of his many talents also include breaking and entering. So if you're looking for a guy, uh, you now know one. He's, he was quite efficient at it. But the reason I tell you guys this story is because when I was in California, that seemed like a good thing to do. That was a good thing to do. And then what happened was I moved here. And so I... In thinking what was the best thing to do was to save money on electricity, I did something that made sense to me at the time, but as you longtime Minnesotans know, you're like, why on earth would you do that? Like, that doesn't make any sense. It would have cost you thousands of dollars if Jake wasn't there. And this is kind of what I want to talk about, because I think sometimes this is actually the experience of being a Christian, is we do things that make sense to us in, in our lives before Jesus. We do things that add to the rest of the world make a ton of sense, as if when I was in Southern California, turning off my air made sense to everyone else. But now that we're Christians, we have a new citizenship. See, this is what Paul says uh, when he's writing about how to follow Christ in Philippians 3.20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await our Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying is we now have citizenship. We identify our culture is from a different place now. It's from heaven. We have a new way of living and acting. And in the same way that my citizenship now is here in Minnesota, the things that I did before might not make sense to—the the things that I did before might, my, might not make sense to my new citizenship here. And this is the experience of being a Christian, is there's things that we do that make sense to us, but then when we start to understand God, what God has for us and God's way of living, we go— Oh, God's way is actually better, and when I understand how to follow him, sometimes the way I choose to do things don't make sense to me. And Jesus puts this so well, he's talking to his disciples in Mark uh, 10, 42 through 45, and he's speaking to them, and they're talking about trying to get position and power, just like the rest of the world sees position and power. And what Jesus says is he he wants to redefine how we look at position and power. And what I want to do with the rest of this message today is I want to kind of piggyback off Jesus' words here and in the Sermon on the Mount and talk about how Jesus presents a new way of doing things, a new culture. This is what Jesus says to his disciples. It says, Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials and exercise authority over them. And see, what Jesus is saying right there is that makes sense. People lord their position over others. But he says, not so with you. He's bringing a new way of doing things. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, the disciples were focused on how can we become important? How can we sit at your right and left hand? How can we get position and power? And Jesus says, Most people think that you get position and power by clawing and fighting and putting other people down. But I'm about to show you that if you want power and position in my kingdom, you'll put yourself down to lift other people up. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time here is I want to talk about three areas that are actually all found in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, about how Jesus presents this, what I'm going to refer to as his upside down kingdom. It's an upside down way of doing things. Now, when I say upside down, I know many of you are thinking stranger things. It just came out. I'm not referring to stranger things. It is Jesus' way of saying, this might not make sense to the world, but this should make sense to you guys, just in the same way that turning off my heat made sense to me, but once I moved here, you go, that doesn't actually make sense. Now that my citizenship is with Jesus, he's gonna go, I'm gonna show you the proper way to do things. I'm gonna show you my upside down kingdom. And he presents this in the Sermon on the Mount. What the Sermon on the Mount is is this is Jesus and he's speaking to a crowd of people and he's talking to a Jewish audience about the laws that they used to hold and what he says to them over and over again is he says you have heard it said and then he follows a statement up with what they've heard with truly I tell you and Jesus is redefining the culture he's like you guys have heard it said live this way but truly I tell you here's a proper way to live and he is identifying for people how they can live better how they can live different, how they can see things through his kingdom mindset. So let's jump in. The first area where we see Jesus' upside-down kingdom different from our own is how we handle our relationships won't make sense to secular society. How we handle our relationships won't make sense to secular society. In Matthew 5, we see Jesus talk about these areas. He talks about anger, adultery, lust, Divorce, keeping our words, not repaying wrong with wrongs, uh, loving our enemies and those who have betrayed us. And what Jesus is doing is basically all of Matthew 5, if you have time to read it this week, I encourage you to. In all of Matthew 5, he is laying out how we should handle our relationships and his kingdom is very different than our natural default as people. See, most relationships are for, for us the way it comes naturally to us is built on reaction and feeling, and what Jesus is calling us to is to make a choice to love, to choose in our actions love rather than be reactionary. And this is so different from the secular world. See, secular society may think the principles that Jesus shares in Matthew 5 as good, but they aren't working towards them as a baseline to be transformed by. If you watch any reality TV show about finding love, like I've never seen this show, but for example, The Bachelor, if I had hypothetically at any point in my life watched an episode of The Bachelor, I would tell you that it's not long before you realize that everything in that show is driven by emotion and feeling. The people on that show, sometimes they do really crazy things. That's why it's so entertaining for us, because we're like, this is a train wreck. What are you guys doing? And a lot of times their explanation for things is I was just following my heart. I was just, I was just doing what my emotions led me to do. And it's funny because almost every season that I've watched, I I, I mean, read about in articles, (laughs) what happens when emotions and feelings aren't present is very quickly effort fades. And anyone that's been married longer than six months will tell you that feelings fade real quick, but effort and intentionality never should. And this should be the baseline for our, emotion, for our relationships with people, whether it be romantic relationships or whether you're friendships or relationships with family. What Jesus is, is talking about here is he's like, all of these things that he lays out in Matthew 5, he's like, these might not actually be present if it is solely based on feelings, if it is how you feel about someone. But he lays out a way of acting that says, here is a choice we can make to love others. See, how we treat other people also isn't going to make sense to the internet because the internet is also all about feelings and reactions and if someone angers you just become indignant and get angry there was an article written a couple years ago by dave berry and it's called how to argue effectively and i want to read you this excerpt from it dave says i argue very well ask any of my remaining friends i can win any argument on any topic against any opponent people know this and steer clear of me at parties often as a sign of their great respect they don't even invite me you too can win any argument, Simple, simply follow these rules. Number one, drink liquor. Number two, make things up. Be specific when you make things up so people don't question you. Use meaningless but weighty sounding words and phrases like, well, as it were, or so let me put it this way. Uh, use snappy and irrelevant comebacks like when someone says something, uh, a, brings a good argument to you, you say, oh, you're just begging the question. Uh, And number five, compare your opponent to Adolf Hitler. This is the heavy heavy artillery for when you know your opponent is obviously right and you are spectacularly wrong. Bring up Hitler subtly. Say, that sounds suspiciously like something Adolf Hitler might say. Or, you certainly do remind me a lot of Adolf Hitler. So that's it. Now you know how to out-argue anybody. Now I know this is a funny article that displays someone kind of joking about not arguing with proper information, but just being angry and arguing. But I find that there actually is some truth in this article in my own life. See, when I read on the internet people who disagree with me, or in my own life, when I have people that are hard to love or or I may differ from, the easiest thing for me to do is to become indignant and just go, oh, well, I don't see eye to eye with you. We don't get along, so I'm just going to write you off. But The harder thing to do, the thing that Jesus calls us to do, is to seek understanding and to seek peace with the people who differ from us, who are hard to love. And I I don't want to address this too much more because Jeremiah actually did a whole series on this called This Beautiful Mess back in September. So if you guys want to listen to more about how to structure your relationships, I encourage you to go back and read that. But the bottom line here is Jesus calls us in our relationships to live different. He doesn't call us to, he's like, how do you feel about that person? Well, treat them how you feel. The, the way Jesus calls us to view our relationships, and this is the way I need to start viewing my relationships, is how do I love that person? And this is the lens I now ask myself. I'm like, well, I will love that person as long as Jesus still loves me. And guess what? He always does, and he always will. And it's the hardest thing to do when you've been hurt or let down or heartbroken or betrayed by someone. But what Jesus calls us to do is to show effort to be kind to those who don't deserve it because he was kind to us and we didn't deserve it. Number two, how we handle our finances might not make sense to a financial advisor. How we handle our finances won't make sense to a financial advisor. If I sit down with a financial advisor, I hope that there's some areas where I choose to spend my money where they look at that and say it doesn't make sense to them. Like, for example, I hope they might see my tithing and my generosity in some areas as over the top. I actually know a pastor who one time he sat down with his financial advisor and every year his financial advisor would sit down with him and say hey I think that your giving is bordering a little bit on irresponsible you could actually have more money for retirement if you if you didn't spend as much in tithing and generosity (laughs) the pastor would always just smile and go good I like it that way and and his financial advisor never really got it because he's like my retirement is in heaven my retirement's not here on earth it's not in when I'm 60 and 70 And it's funny because we all know that money won't make us happy, but yet we all still want a lot of it, right? Like when God talks about that money is not gonna fulfill us, I'm like, well, can I be your test subject for that, God? I'd love to be, can you put me through the ringer? Give me extreme wealth so I can find out whether it brings real happiness or not. And this is what Jesus says, again, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. He's talking to the people setting a new culture and he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moss and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moss and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. And what Jesus is saying here is he's not saying it's wrong to have nice things or earthly wealth, but he's saying that earthly wealth needs to come secondary to heavenly wealth. What he's showing people here is that you, if you're storing up money for retirement, that it's not going to last you. You need to store up for your heavenly retirement, for when you're with God forever, that you invest, that you see things through his, you see money through his earthly kingdom. And so you ask yourself, okay, what is, what is heavenly that I can invest in? And the, the most simple answer, which is sitting all right all around you, is people. If you're wondering, what can I invest my money into that I can take with me into heaven? It's people. See, a couple years back, um, I I never really liked Starbucks. I thought their coffee was overrated. Maybe you, some of you are with me in the same camp. You're like, oh, their coffee is burnt, and you prefer to go other places. But uh, about two years ago, I saw that Starbucks stock was performing well, and so I decided to invest in Robin, or I decided to invest on Robinhood in Starbucks stock. So I bought a couple shares. And then what happened? All of a sudden, my viewpoint changed. What changed was. I had investment in the company. Now I wanted to start going there more. All of a sudden, I liked their coffee a lot more. I would tell people about holiday deals they had going on. Why? Because I now had stake in the company. I was now invested. How they performed affected me. And I think Jesus wants us to start viewing people this same way. It's, he's not just like, whatever, just be a hermit and don't talk to other people because you'll get to heaven one day. Jesus is like, all the people you see around you, you want them to be arm-in-arm with you in heaven, with eternity, sitting with me, glorifying the Father. And so he's like, it's a new investment strategy. People are like, hey, you're wasting your retirement. And I'm like, I know, because I'm focused on my my after-death retirement. I'm focused on when I'm sitting with Jesus. And Jim Elliott, uh, he was a famous missionary who actually died in the mission field, and he had an opportunity at one point in his life to be a... An actor and he decided to choose going to the missions field instead and this is his famous quote he says he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose and what jim elliott's talking about here is he was giving up what he couldn't keep which was money and time in order to invest in who he was becoming as a person following christ and into other people and so you guys look at your money and you're like well should we just give it all away no, I mean, you need to provide for your families and be responsible with your money, but you can't take your money with you into heaven, but you can send it forward. So look at people as an opportunity to invest in. And part of me hopes, I hope that, that I follow my own rules in this, because oftentimes I turn to money for security, not Jesus. But part of me hopes that I leave this world broke. Don't tell my wife. But part of me hopes that I leave this world broke because I want everything to be spent on people knowing Jesus. See, when I interned at my last church, in order to get the position I wanted to be at, I put in a lot of time, effort, and money for very little pay in order to get the position I could want. And I kind of want to view heaven, I want to view earth as interning for heaven. I'm using all my time, resources, and money to become the person I want to be in heaven when I'm with Jesus for eternity. I'm willing to waste it all in 70 years so that I can spend eternity with other people and myself knowing Jesus. And this isn't going to make sense to a financial advisor. They're not, going to, they're not going to see your 401k and say, you have nothing in your 401k. They're not going to look at other people and go, yeah, that makes sense that you're investing in other people. They just want you to build into retirement and your assets. But our biggest assets are the people around us, the people that we can love. The third and final thing in Jesus' upside-down kingdom is how we shape our schedule won't make sense to the American dream. How we shape our schedule won't make sense to the American dream. One of the biggest success stories in America in the last decade is Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I've always loved The Rock, uh, I loved his movies, and being a football fan, I've always been fascinated by his story. If you don't know the story, The Rock was a collegiate football player on path to, being, becoming to the, going to the NFL. He was one of the best college football players. And rather than letting, or sorry, then he had an injury that ended his football career. And rather than letting that be the end of his story, he decided that he was going to work tirelessly and instead of living a normal life, he was going to give himself multiple opportunities. And he went from being this no-name actor to doing basically poor kids movies to being the highest paid actor in 2021. And a couple months back, I was reading an article where The Rock talked about his schedule and how to become successful. And in it, he details his rigorous routine, which starts every morning at 3 a.m., and so I was reading this article, and I started getting this itch where I'm like, oh, man, I want to become more like The Rock. I want to start looking like The Rock, right? It's, it's going to happen. Um, so I was like, I need to start waking up earlier and working out and, and, and being more disciplined with my schedule. And then as I was getting this itch and feeling like I wasn't doing enough and I needed to do more, I paused and realized, I don't know if I want to be like The Rock. Now, don't get me wrong. I love The Rock. He's one of my favorite actors, and he's the poster child for The American Dream. But I don't know if the success and fame that the rock have achieved are all it's cracked up to be. See, Jesus, when he's, when he's talking about following him, he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He also, in the Sermon on the Mount, he tells people not to worry about tomorrow. Or when his disciples ask him to pray, he, ta- he tells them that we need to ask God to provide for us, to be the one we're dependent on. And, and what, the, what the American dream is all about is being self-made, It's this idea of I picked myself up on my own bootstraps and I built myself. And that was this itch I got from reading The Rock is I'm going to build my own success. But the irony is that the opposite of the gospel message. The Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is saying is he lays out this new way of living. And afterwards, his disciples go, Jesus, this is impossible. And he's like, I know. But with God, all things are possible. And what he's telling is he's like, you're not going to be able to achieve these things on your own. You're not going to be able to live this way that doesn't make sense to you fully yet on your own, so you need me. You're not gonna be able to save yourself. You're not gonna be able to structure your schedule in the proper way, so that's why you need to be dependent on me. And I wanna order my schedule so that I become this self-sufficient person, but when I look at the gospel message, it changes the way I order my schedule. Paul puts it this way when he's writing to the church and Colossae. say, he says this, whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart, as if you're working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. See, my schedule should be ordered by my desire to please God. I should, be, I should order my schedule by my, my, for my audience of one, which is God. But what's sad is I almost never consider God when I'm creating my schedule. And I'm sure I'm not alone in this. See, how much would my schedule change if at the end of each day I knew that I was, I was working as I am working for God and I had to submit my day to God? I had to basically punch out a day's time card as I'm going to bed and saying, here's, what I, here's how I used my day to glorify you. How would my schedule shift? How would my day-to-day life shift if I had to submit to God? I tell you what, it would, I know for sure it would kill both laziness and workaholism in me. First, it kills laziness because when I'm working for God, I can't just sit by and be like, oh, you got everything under control anyways, God. You're supreme. I'm just going to sit here and play games on my phone all day. You got this covered. God has called me to work for him and to be diligent as working in his kingdom. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put in time and effort and not be lazy because I want to bring God glory here on earth and I want to use my time well so people can know Jesus. But it also kills workaholism. See, in The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which is a book by John Mark Comer, he says, workaholism is the most widely celebrated addiction in the U.S. today. Most addictions will get you fired from your job, or can get you fired or in trouble from your job. Alcoholism, uh, shopalism, whatever it is, all these addictions can get, you, can get you in trouble at work. But workaholism, it gets you celebrated at work. If you put in long hours and are addicted to your work, you actually get promoted. You get encouraged to become a workaholic. And I have this tendency in my life, I have the tendency to work long hours, I have the tendency to put my work before my family. And why? Because I want the praise of other people. I wanna hear, good job, you're doing great. Or I I want my uh, superiors and my supervisors to tell me that I'm worthwhile. But when I'm working for Jesus, I put my worth and my value in him. And he tells me that I'm enough because I'm his son. Because we're his sons or daughter, because we're his children. He tells me that I'm enough just because I'm his kid. And so I don't need to work these long hours. I don't need to impress everyone else. And I did this. I did this at the church I used to work at and it destroyed me. I put my worth in what my boss told me I was. And when he thought I was crushing it, all of a sudden I was on a mountaintop. But if he thought I was doing a bad job or something I needed to work on, all of a sudden I was crushed. And this kills workaholism in me because my worth is now found in Jesus. It's not found in my work. And in that, I can halt my day. I can go, my day ends here, I don't need to work anymore. Because it's okay if I don't impress my boss in this area as long as I love the people Jesus put in my life, namely Heather, Paisley, and Jack. And if you look at your schedule through the Upside Down Kingdom, the American dream might tell you that you won't be wildly successful or or, tre- or achieve extreme wealth, but that's okay because you can just smile and realize that you're not interested in those things, anyways. And not that success and wealth are wrong, but pursuing them the world's way isn't what I'm after. Isn't what we should be after when we start to look at things through Jesus' upside-down kingdom. I hope that there's times in this world where I'm seen as a professional failure as long as my wife and my kids know that they have a present father and husband in their life. And so I need to look at my day and say, am I ordering my day in order to connect with God, to connect with my wife, to connect with my kids, and am I working diligently in order to bring you glory in your name? And so what Jesus does here is he gives three areas on how to live differently in his upside-down world, in his upside-down kingdom, in a way that might not make sense to the rest of the world— and he concludes his sermon on the mount by saying this: Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against it, and that house did not fall. Yet because it had a foundation on the ro- or because it had a foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down the streams rose and the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash what jesus says here and many other times as he's speaking in the gospels as he says he who hears these words of mine or and he puts it another way he who has ears let them hear jesus understood that when he was presenting this way of living that it might not make sense to everyone that in that when my my dad called me and said, hey, you probably should call someone who lives in Minnesota and ask them how to take care of your house when you leave, I said, no, I think I got it covered. And if I just talked to any of you, you could say, hey, this might not make sense to you right now, but leave your heat on. And this is what Jesus does with us. He goes, this might not make sense to you right now, but but when you listen to my words, it's like you're building on a firm foundation. It's like you are putting your... You're putting your... Your foundation of your life on a rock. And oftentimes this doesn't make sense to me because when Jesus gives me a way of living and I don't understand it, I don't go, oh, maybe I should just take time to understand this because you're God. No, instead I look at this as as one of Jesus' rules. You wanna why I see it as a rule? It's because I start to think that I'm pretty self-sufficient. I'm like, I'm a competent, self-sufficient individual. I know some of you are like, you're not competent, you turned off your air. But Like, I'm a competent, self-sufficient, I have kids, you know, I'm like, I'm good at taking care of myself. And so when I don't understand Jesus' way of living, I don't say, oh, maybe I should try and understand how that makes sense in your kingdom. Instead, I'm like, no, no, I got this covered, God. But now that I have kids, I've started to realize that that when it comes with my relationship to God, I'm a lot more like my two-year-old than I like to admit. You see, my two-year-old, as many of you know who have young kids or have had kids at any point, kids and toddlers think that they are doing a great job at taking care of themselves. My daughter all the time, she thinks she knows exactly what she wants and she's always on a path, I swear to hurt herself. That's like kids, it's, it's just, you're making sure they don't die all the time. You're like, no, no, don't, t- don't touch that, don't eat that. But you also know what your kids like, you want them to enjoy food. Sometimes we give them sugary treats because we wanna see their faces when they get to enjoy ice cream. And a couple months back, I was gonna give paisley mango, and I've given her mango before when she was younger, and I knew she liked it. But she looked at this mango, and what she saw was a sticky, slimy yellow thing, and she's like, mm, I'm okay. I know that's, pro- that's probably not what I want. I'm not interested. And me, as her dad, I was like, I know you like mango. This is like the best. This is like the king of all the fruit. It's the best. I know you're going to like it. Just try the mango. And she, kept, she always does this to me. She goes, No, 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 want it. No, no, want it. That's what she says right now. No, no, want it. No, no, like it. So she just like, she kept, I was like, just eat the mango. I am not gonna feed you anything else right now, just eat the mango. And so I'm like fighting with Paisley, I'm like, just eat your, I'm like, you're two, you are too, you do not know what you want, just eat the mango. So I like any responsible father, I forced her to try it. <laughs> and the moment it touched, it was like, I had to like fight with her, but like the moment it touched her mouth, she was like, she was like screaming because she didn't want it and it like just touched her mouth. And then she like paused. And she was like skeptical. And she looked at the mango and she looked at me. And almost like anyone, when you know you're wrong, And you're like, I can't admit that I actually like this. Kind of like slowly just like grabs it, like slowly eats one and then like looks at me and then just starts shoveling it in, right? And just like eating all the mango. And what I started to realize is that there's times that I do this with God, that I see the way God is calling me to live. I see him as these rules and God's trying to give me a sweet, delicious gift here. He's like, if you live this way, I promise that your life would be so much better. And I'm like, God, no, 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 want it. I no, no, want your rules. And God's like, trust me, you don't understand that this is actually better for you. And so I'm fighting God because I'm like, oh, you're so controlling, God. And he's like, no, this is actually a beautiful gift of love that I'm trying to offer you. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. I love the way he says it. C.S. Lewis says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drinking and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. And I end up battling with God in my own life because I'm like, I think I got it covered, God. And God's saying, I want you to see things in my upside-down kingdom. I know they don't make sense to you right now, but give it some time. Just try it, and I promise you'll like it. In the same way that I knew Paisley would like it because I'm our father, God knows that we will like his way of living because he's our father, and he is a good father who cares about you deeply. And maybe you're sitting here today, and you're like, "Ah, I just... I've never really followed Jesus, or I've never fully said yes to God, because... I'm so sick of the rules and this controlling God who wants to control every facet of how I want to live. Or maybe the religious background you've come from, you're you're scared of the rules that they don't give you an explanation for the love behind what God is trying to call us to do. They just say, just follow this because. Because that's what the Bible says and that's what God wants. And God doesn't want blind obedience. He wants us to, to follow in obedience to see his love behind every action that he shows us. And so what I, I want to give you guys the opportunity, as we wrap up this message, maybe you're sitting here today, and you're like, you know what, I've, I've never really seen God's upside-down kingdom. I know he presents kind of a way of living, and, I, and I'm kind of doing that, but I'm also kind of doing what makes sense to the rest of the world. But I want to invite you into God's way of thinking, to not see these as rules, but as a gift of love from a father who deeply cares about you, who says, I presented an upside-down kingdom because I know that if you try it, you'll like it. And if that's you, and you're sitting here today, and you're going, maybe I've been on this path pushing against the controlling God, but I want to take a step forward. I want to be invited to God's acts of love, of an upside-down kingdom that is so much better than I could have ever imagined, and I want to start building my house on the foundation of Christ. Would you pray this prayer with me? Dear Lord, too often we go about thinking that we've got this life figured out, but you, you came as a man and you said, let me show you a new way of doing things. And for a lot of us, we just need the courage to start trying to see things your way, to just start doing life your way. That when we start seeing you as Father and living the way that you've called us to, that we'll experience great freedom and great joy. And so, God, we want to be invited into a relationship with you and God, we surrender our lives, we surrender our way of trying, we surrender our self-made, our, our idea of being self-sufficient, we lay that down at your feet and we ask God for you to show us how to live in a way that makes sense with your will, with your kingdom, so that we can have the best life possible, so that we can go on helping other people know you. God, we want to know you and we want a relationship with you. We invite you into our hearts and into our lives. We love you and we pray these things in your name. Amen.